we left off Matthew 18, 1 to 4 is where we ended last Sabbath. Uh, so we're ready to start with verse 10. And this is a very important passage to uh, ecclesiology, to how we do church. So we need to unpack it carefully. And I'm wondering, I don't think, I don't think we should start with verse 10. I think we would miss the whole point of the passage if we did. So we're going to read a lot. Um, Tara, would you like to read verses 1 to 5, please? At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Okay, Shalina, would you read the next four verses, which would be six, uh, six through nine. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man for whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter a life named or crippled or to have two hands or two than to have two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes to be thrown into the fire. Okay, Doug, we read uh, verses 12 to 14. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away... Will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, he will tell uh, you the truth. He is happier about the one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. Okay, uh, Edward, uh, would you read verses 15 to 20? Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Okay. Uh, Christian. We're going to read probably this whole chapter. Because, okay. because in order to, to really unpack it, you need the whole chapter. Okay, so verses 22 to 27. 
2227. Okay. Jesus answered, I tell you not. To. Oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. 21 okay. to 27. Okay. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Okay. Uh, Kim, would you read verses 28 to... There's no good stopping place here. 34, 28 to 34, please. But the same servant went out and found out found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell, fell to his feet, down at his feet, and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, I will repay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison until he should pay the debt. So when the fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry, and came and told unto the, their Lord that all, all that was done. Then his Lord, then his Lord, after he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all thy debt, because thou desirest to meet. Shouldst thou not have the same compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And the Lord was his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all the debt due unto him. So likewise shall thy heavenly Father do unto you, if ye uh, from your hearts forgive not every one of your brothers their trespasses. What's the gist of this passage? Well, we have to have patience and forgiveness. Okay, it, it certainly ends on that note. Where does it begin? Verse 1. The characteristics we need to adopt in order to, to be part of the kingdom. You need to be like a child. Yeah. Are, are children generally naturally forgiving? No. no. It depends on the child. Some children are very forgiving. Mm-hmm. Uh, some children have to be taught to forgive. But if, the, if a child has good role models and parents who forgive, usually a child is, is very forgiving. So let's, let's outline what's going on in this chapter. The, the disciples want, want power. They want to be great. They want to have the prestige, fame, all of those things. So they come to Jesus and say, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, a child. And that's the lowest common denominator in the Roman Empire. <laughs> Uh, a children were means to an end, mm-hmm. purely. I don't know. It, no one's ever done a study of children in the Roman Empire that I know of. But if you were to do one, I'm pretty sure that they would rank below the lowest slave in terms of, of um, how should I put it, in terms of value hmm. to people in the Roman Empire. 
You remember when Jesus was blessing the children, the disciples' reaction. Go away, go away. He's a rabbi. You can't do that. Uh, to the disciples, Jesus had power and prestige and fame, and he, they, had to protect, they were there to protect that, and children would rob him of that. So if he spent time with children, he would, he would become zero like children were. And this is especially true in the Roman Empire, Roman context. Female children mm-hmm. were not desired at all. Mm-hmm. And the easiest way to deal with female children was to put them out in public and hope someone to come by and adopt them. As a slave, of course. Never as a child. Uh, in fact, if you, wanted, if you were a poor person and you wanted a slave, the easiest way to go and get one for your estate is simply find an exposed child, usually a female. Mm-hmm. And, and raise her and have sex with her and have a child by her and that child would be your slave. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the context in which Jesus is talking about. Mm-hmm. Then he goes next. He says, it's so valuable. These, these, if the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is a child, and you can't be great in the kingdom of heaven unless you become like a child, mm-hmm. then the next thing is that... If you abuse a child, mm-hmm. if you cause a child to trip and fall into sin, if, if you cause a child uh, to stumble, <laughs> you're a, worse than a zero. You're a minus quantity, and you need to be down at the bottom of the sea. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus is using very strong language here. Uh, what's he building up to? Well, then you have the parable of the lost sheep. This is how much God is willing to expend for one of these little ones. This is how valuable they are. Uh, it's not so much about how punitive God can be. I mean, we tend to read that into the text. Like, oh, ooh, put it in the bottom of the sea. That's terrible. But well, as a parent, I love it. So, you know, you know what I mean? I mean, so, so Jesus didn't bother me there. So. <laughs> but, but some people are, are freaked out by that. And, and the truth is Jesus is establishing value. This is how valuable a child is. Now, it comes to the... If this is chiastically structured, which I believe it is, keep in mind, ancient Hebrew writers, and Matthew is a Hebrew, he's he's writing as a Hebrew, uh, they wrote in chiastic structure. Chiastic structure means that you have the beginning and the end are on a similar topic. And the next item and the next item from the end is the the next topic. Mm -hmm. And then the next item and and so on. And the middle is the high point. This is the point of the passage. This is where Jesus is going. So let's look at verses 15 to 20. So if your brother or sister sins against you, go and correct them when they are alone. When you are alone together. How many of us do that? When someone sins against us, what do we do? We go tell who? Everybody but them. Everybody. <laughs> yeah. If they listen to you, then you've won over your brother and sister or sister. But if they won't listen with you, take one or two others so that every word may be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. That means you're on trial as well as the person who wronged you. Because you want to take witnesses so that if you mess up in this conversation, they can call you and say, now wait a minute, I heard him say this and I heard you say that, and, and they can establish what is happening. But if they still won't listen, report it to the church. If they won't pay attention even to the church, treat them as you would a Gentile and a tax collector. 
Now, what is that? How does that mean? How how are we supposed to treat them? If we're to treat them like a gentile, or a tax collector? Win, win them back. Win them back. I assure you that whatever you fasten on earth will be fastened in heaven, and whatever you loosen on earth will be loosened in heaven. I used to think that that meant to bind, as in terms of expulsion or whatever. But actually, I now think, and this is not how we usually interpret this, I now think that the binding that is the binding to Christ and the loosening is the letting go. Mm-hmm. You're, you're on a different pat track. We're going to let you go that way, but you're no longer with us. Uh, again, I assure you that if two or three of you agree on earth on anything you ask, then my Father who is in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there with them. Why does Jesus put this case of church discipline, which is really what it is, in the middle of how you treat children and how valuable children are? And then... On the other side of it, how often to forgive. Mm -hmm. And how being unforgiving is terrible. Why why do you think Jesus, or why do you think Matthew puts it in that context? Matthew is is a theologian. He does write theology uh, in the way he crafts and shapes his his gospel. And why do you think that's in? He lays lays out the, the belief. Uh, how you treat children and how you forgive and then he gives the application within the society how this you know how you deal with discipline how you treat each other and you know it's cool I never thought of it that way he builds that yeah yeah in other words whatever you do in church discipline you have to take into consideration of being first of all a child of recognizing that maybe this is a child someone has caused to stumble. You need to get to the bottom of that. Who caused you to stumble? And what did they do to you to cause you to stumble? Always seek the cause and the reason. I I see this as therapeutic ministry rather than uh, censorship. That's what Jesus is is driving at. And and this is something we're not good at following at all. We tell everybody else. We don't talk to the person. The person gets it fifth, sixth, seventh hand uh, from our mouths. And then it reminds me of a student in a doctrinal studies class that I taught many years ago. He had trouble with English as a second language. And so he was writing about church disfellowship. I asked him to deal with Matthew 18. And he said, and if, if he won't listen to the church, he is to be dismembered. <laughs> and I suddenly had this picture in my mind of something I'm afraid we're too, all, too guilty of doing. The classic. So, so what if we became that kind of church, therapeutic? What if, what if we came to see sin as something that is injuring the other person, that is hurting them, that is destroying them? Uh, something like abuse. Mm-hmm. A thousand where there's not one. <laughs> you know, Jane, what you mentioned, 
he comes at it. I know when I moved from theology and, and to become a therapist, and you think in a whole different paradigm, it's not a punitive right and wrong. But one of the rules as a therapist, there's a reason for every behavior. That is a paradigm we operate on. So you're looking, you're not being judging or this is bad or good. You say, what causes this? Where's the, and he comes at that healing model that he uses. I hope this might be applicable to um, somebody, but a long time ago when I was taking algebra and we were doing logarithms um, in verse 20, it, I just happened to be reading it and I've always wondered, you know, 70 times 7, oh man, I'd hate to be the 491st. Right? <laughs> Who's counting at the, at the yeah, 490th yeah. level, yeah. anyway? But I, but I thought, now there's something more to this. And in doing, you know, log, logarithms, you raise it to however many powers. and Exponentially. It, exponentially. And so 70, it's 7, and it's a 7 times 70. So 7 to the 70th power. And I plugged that into my calculator, and I thought, hmm, his forgiveness is a 52-digit number. But it is a real number. It's 52 digits in the whole side, not the fractional side. And it's just like, wow. But it's a number. It stops. It has, a, it has an end because there are consequences if you don't forgive and, and eventually there will be... Eventually, you can't accept forgiveness if you keep on sinning right. against someone. And I just thought... Mm. That, that, that's more the, more the point than that you can't be forgiven. Is right. That, right. It's not that God finally says, oh, that's the 490th first time, I'm done. Yeah. Uh, no more forgiveness. It, it has nothing to do with that at all. Yeah. It's that if you perpetually sin against a person that many times, you are unlikely to even be willing to admit that you're wrong well, and accept forgiveness. You know, I think for those that, that, that don't end up in the kingdom... You know, it's it's a sign of God's love because they would be unhappy there, and 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 others that want to be happy there wouldn't be happy there either. You know, so so I don't think I think it, look at less as a punishment. You know, it's like God knows the desires of our heart, and like He's not going to put us somewhere where we're unhappy. You know, so I, I try to look at it that way. Um, one thing you need to know: when Peter is it Peter? Yeah, he, he's the one that asked how many times. He's the one that asked, and he said seven times. Peter was being extravagant. Rab- rabbinic, uh, or I should say the rabbis taught that you had to only forgive three times. And that's kind of carried over into law nowadays. You know, three strikes three and you're strikes. out. Yeah, yeah. So when, when Peter says seven times, he thinks seven is the perfect number, right? <laughs> it's, it's the finish, the complete, that's it. I only have to forgive seven times. Surely Jesus will say, you're right, Peter. <laughs> and Jesus, with a twinkle in his eye, says, not seven times. And he's thinking, oh, three? And Jesus says, seven times seventy. Can you count that one? Mm-mm. Nobody can. Mm-mm. I think the most, what is it the most human beings can count? I, I, I heard a figure once, but I, I forget what it was. Maybe one, because sometimes you hear people say, 
I forgive you already once. That's it. <laughs> Don't go to the second. That's not, that's not Jesus' forgiveness. Mm -hmm. I remember as a child in grade school, my, at back in the, in the days when I was in elementary school, uh, and I may have told this in this class again, forgive me, but um, I had a teacher, and, and this was at a time period when in church elementary schools, uh, corporal punishment was allowed, mm -hmm. and it was done regularly. And the principal's office was right off the classroom. So the third and fourth grade students got the privilege of hearing wow. what went on. And believe me, the room went deathly silent. Everybody was sitting there. Well, one of my classmates who rarely acted up, I don't know what on earth he did to deserve what he got, but he got paddled. And he, he was distraught afterwards. He was had his head down on his, on his desk, and, and he was sobbing. And I felt really sorry for him. And I had lingered in the classroom instead of going out to recess, I think because I was, I was just feeling bad for this classmate. Because he was, he was a nice kid. And finally he lifted up his head and he said, Mrs. Graham, I'm sorry I did that. She says, well, I'll forgive you if you never do it again. <laughs> I remember just thinking, I can't believe she said that. You know, I, my mother would never have said that to, right, right. to me or to my brother. If we repented, we were forgiven, and that was that. Uh, and I remember just the horror of that moment and, and, and thinking, what a conditional forgiveness is this? <laughs> well, my mama was one that would inflict corporal punishment but she kept forgiving you. You know what I mean? But like, but like she believed. Like, like she say to me when she get mad at me, like, "Honey, you are so far out of whack right now that you can't hit your rear end with either hand." But guess what? I can. You know what I mean? Like with mine. You know what? But like, but I. But even though my mom was tough on me, I knew she loved me. You know what I mean? And she. I mean, and it was tough being a single mom, trying to raise boys. You know, so I don't hold anything against it. I, I took a little different form. With my kids, I mean, if they got a spanking, it's kind of like, uh, like you know, like a little, you know, I couldn't kind of couldn't do it. time. And my daughter was very extroverted like me, so she hated timeouts. That was my way to. That was worse than getting a spanking for her. So, but you know, so but but I don't, you know, I I, I think you can. I'm not, I'm not advocating corporal punishment because it was really hard for me. But I but I think you can be a forgiving person and still administer that kind of discipline. At least I felt like my mom was able but, to do that. But forgiveness, forgiveness doesn't hold back, does it? It doesn't right. say, I forgive you, but. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, no, it, yeah. It, it's one of the hardest things clinically to get people when you're dealing with. Forgiveness is the most powerful cleansing agent I know of when you're dealing with human nature. But it has to be clinical forgiveness. It has to be that I will never think about it, talk about it, bring it up. You know, we have these kind of rules what forgiveness operationally looks at. It can't be conditional, or it does not work. It is, you know, to, for that to really be a cleansing thing. Otherwise, there's all that fear and all that pressure. I want to ask you, Gene, you know, he put the children first, forgiveness last. Was forgiveness a strange of... Well, I, you, you weren't here when I was telling them that the rabbis had a saying that you had to forgive three times. And so when Peter says seven times, oh. 
Yeah, yeah. He's he's giving the he's giving the perfect number, the complete number. Yeah. And he's he thinks that Jesus is going to say, "Yes, Peter, you got it right." And then right. Jesus blows his mind. But what about the Romans? Was it totally something that never was it was really considered weakness or stuff to, like treating a child with respect and dignity? Mm. Forgiveness. I think on rare, very rare occasions, it's possible that uh, you, and, wrong, and you yeah. could you could get pardon, and very rare occasions. But I would guess that, as with almost every society in a secular realm, that forgiveness you'd have to have excellent behavior in prison, so to speak. And you know, you know how we do it in, in our society. Why do you get early parole? Because you're a nice guy in prison, and and you you toe the line and you cooperate and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And, and that's what gives you early parole. You know, I think there's kind of two sides to it. I think when we're when it comes to other people's behavior towards us, we have I think we have to be very forgiving. But I think we also need to be very accountable when it comes to how we behave, as opposed to like, oh, the Bible says forgive, you know. So like, you know, because even like when we say like when we say something that's awry in the in the heat of the moment, and somebody forgives us for what we said, that hurt is still there. You you know you know what I mean? Like I can remember like I probably said like one negative thing for every thousand positive things I said to my children, but even though we have a good relationship, they still remember that little negative thing I said when they were four. You know, and so so we have well, to be really careful. That that's true. That on the other hand, a person who truly forgives, that hurt is healed mm-hmm. in the free process of forgiving. If they truly, completely forgive, it it uh, there's something about receiving the love of God, internalizing it, and 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 recognizing how. The much God loves me, and that's enabling me to for, to give forgive and love someone who has hurt me. Uh, there is something about that that just cleanses it from me as well as from that person. I remember, Gene, I was a um, young graduate student. Now I've been a minister for ten years, but I had been deeply hurt and kind of pushed out of my hometown when a new supervisor came in. And I remember, you know, you experience that that deep forgiving, cleansing, you accept it. And, and I'm German Russian, I can be really stubborn and hold grudges a long time. And and it was just gone. It was just gone. And I remember walking up to this person who had hurt me so deeply and just no animosity, actually, you know, feelings of of caring and, and he's actually a good friend now but um, it that was just gone and it had taken away like half my energy for four or five years you know and it just flatten you out just, but when you go to that I think love constrains more than structure and control ever thought so when you hit that deep level like that that is precisely why I definitely prefer the model of um I cannot think of the term. The model that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission developed in South Africa at the end of apartheid. Are you familiar with that? Um, it is. Um, it's, it's it's a therapeutic model mm-hmm. for justice, but I can't think of the term mm-hmm. that is used. 
uh, in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, they had the people who who were guilty of murder and and practically attempts at genocide uh, to listen to their victims' stories, tell their stories. Uh, I don't think the Truth and Commission, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, went far enough. I think forgiving them once they had listened to their stories would have been the route to take. And then, then if, if they didn't uh, desire healing, if they were still locked into their behavior and, and their thought patterns, uh, then the thing to do is, is to say incarcerate or whatever. But to me, that is the best form of justice. That, that is getting to the root of the problem. That is cleansing uh, this with, with the kind of, of empathetic type approach because by listening to another person's story, listening to how they went through what you caused them to do is, is extremely holding them to accountability. But, but uh, much I'm, more than just laying down the law. Laying down the law tends to create rebellion and, and resistance mm-hmm. and, and self-defense and all of the mechanisms we human beings do to try to justify ourselves. Mm-hmm. But letting them hear the victim's stories is, is, has, has a much greater power to hold them to accountability. I do think Mandela, though, tried to model that personally. And I think he yeah. set a good, yeah. good yeah. example yeah. He did. by the way he conducted he his life. Yeah. yeah. Amazing person. And, and I think that, that to me, I, I know in my own life, I first have to dwell on how much God loves me. And sometimes that takes me to the foot of the cross. Um, and I recognize, you know, that, that, that what I see at the foot of the cross is just a minuscule portion of the pain and suffering God has suffered from the time sin began. Because God feels everything we feel. He suffers with every single human being that he has created uh, in his image. And he knows the cause and effect. He knows the pain that's been inflicted on them. He knows, he knows everywhere we've come from. And, and recognizing that, it just emerges to me in his love. And knowing that he forgave his enemies while they were crucifying him enables me then to forgive mine. I feel, Jean, that's one of, I think that it's really kind of that mystical, you know, I bow thing. When, when you, that's one of the deepest spiritual things you ever experience, that deep uh, level. And, there, and, and it, it heals. It, 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 it heals so, on a way that yeah. you, you can't, you can't quantify, you can't measure, you can't ex- explain. I, I, I think, Jean, it is what I've experienced with people and myself that it is proportional to my my picture, my image. I felt that too, that I can't go there until I feel like you're at the foot of the cross, till you are in a posture of your unworthiness. If, you, if you're coming in and arrogant, well, I forgive you. I mean, wow. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a fraud. Being a pious fraud. You have to be in that posture to go to that deep healing. Well, isn't that why Jesus starts out with the humility of a child? I mean, mm-hmm. you think about our day, children aren't so humble. We mm-hmm. tend to make them all stars. They're all, uh, they're all actors and actresses, and, and we applaud. We sit and applaud them. Uh, so our children don't have this, this kind of background that Jesus knows that children have in the Roman Empire. 
when, when he puts a child in the midst of them and says, uh, unless you become like a child, that is the most humbling thing he could say. And, and so he starts at that point of humility and says, you're really a zero if you hurt one of these children. That's how valuable they are. Mm-hmm. And then he goes to how you, how you discipline. It's in that context. You don't discipline someone arrogantly because you're better than they. You consider yourself. That's why Paul says, you know, consider yourself also. Uh, lest, lest you be led astray and on a different way called self-righteousness. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, this is the model, in my opinion, for the church. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, you know, the tears were in his voice when he gave his yeah. I mean, he, he's feeling... Yeah. 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 So that's, that'd be a great church, huh? <laughs> the, the Can you imagine is human function this way. <laughs> that what happens? I've been working with domestic violence and child abuse for many, many years. Mm-hmm. Is that people think there's a confusion there? They think if they forgive someone, they're yeah. saying that it was okay, okay that you did yeah. this to me. Right. Yeah. And also then to say somebody should remember that situation is ludicrous. You, you do remember it, you just don't have emotional energy there. Attachment. You don't have it. Attachment, the negative, whatever you want to call it. And if you look at God, when He's saying He's forgiving your sins, does that mean He's forgiven what you've done? Mm-hmm. Because apparently I, there's a record of what your character, what your character is. What have you done? Indeed. You might be forgiven for it, but what's your character? I, I, I my understanding is that. God does forgive sin, but that forgiveness is getting rid of it. That is, we tend to limit forgiveness to a legal construct. Right. It is a legal pardon. No, get rid of the legal construct. Forgiveness is immersing that person in love. I love you, regardless of what you've done. I forgive you, and in the process, that whole horrible, noxious weed just gets... So then you can't have Christ pleading for a God because if he's pleading for the God to forgive us for our sin. That is, to me, that's a satanic I think it's I'm going to be I honest. think it's a pollution too. And it's one of the things that I've really struggled with in Adventism. It's like, here it is, Jesus, who created all this, you know, is kind of like in a bunker, like in the most holy place, where all he can do is, is like look at what we've done wrong and beg God to forgive us. And like that kind of clothe, that that's... No, I think Jesus is way bigger than that. You know. No, that, that's, that's and and you know I think of the fact that Ellen White makes it abundantly clear that Jesus isn't pleading the Father to forgive us. The Council of Peace is between them both, and she says that right in the context of the of the investigative judgment in the Great Controversy. Uh, she makes that very very clear. And I, I, I think we just need to throw that picture out. No, he's, he's offsetting Satan's charges against us. And he's dealing with the whole universe. God does everything in a glass house. Right, right. Everything's open to everybody. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no secrets. And there is accountability for God. By that I mean the universe. He carries the universe with him. He is not an autocrat. He is not a dictator. He does not unilaterally hand down decisions and say this is the way it is. 
Um, you don't like that person. You don't want to be next door to them in heaven. Fine, you get to meet them at the gate and take them in here whether you like it or not. God isn't that way. He Amen. carries the universe with him. So this whole investigation that I think is, has been going on since Lucifer mm-hmm. began to fall in heaven. I, I think that's when it started. And our phase is just right now. Uh, and, and what has been going on then is this dialogue of making sure that every single one of his universe is in, on the same page. You know, there are no questions. There are no doubts. There, there's nothing. All the evidence is clear, and Satan has been vanquished. And, and so you have the, the story in Zechariah 3 of Joshua and the high priest, and, mm-hmm. and, and Jesus is pictured there as, as the mediator. And he talks to the Satan. Why does he talk to the Satan? It isn't just for the universe. You add one more picture. What Satan tries to contend with God, he contends with us. He tries to convince us we're too bad, God can't save us, etc., etc., etc. And Jesus has to offset that. The mediation of Jesus is more for us. Mm-hmm. Amen. It's not for God. Mm-hmm. Amen. So, so that's... Gina, this, always, uh, this, this forgiveness on this deep level we're talking about, I've always felt, it, I would talk about it as a gift of forgiveness. I don't think it's something you can conjure up, and I don't think the human nature can even go there. That it is this gift that you receive, like salvation. It's pure grace, man. I have, to, I have to tell you my own story. I had a, a relative who wanted to marry me and made life miserable for me because I wouldn't. And I, he, I, I grew him as a monster in my head. You know, just he was hideous and horrible. And, and one night I realized I had to forgive him. Wow. And I literally took my Bible and tried to find a loophole out. <laughs> <laughs> and I finally came to Matthew five forty-five, forty-eight, and realized there was no loophole. I say, God, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. If, you, if I'm going to forgive this guy, you have to enable have me to, to forgive him. Yeah. And it was like God took him and shrunk him. I had him <laughs> this big monster, right? He shrunk him <laughs> to this little person, and he put his arms of fire around him in my mind. I had this picture in my mind. And he said, he's my child, and I wow. love him. And through the eyes of God, I was able to forgive him that way. And I learned the power of of that. Perfect love casts out all fear. And it cast out my fear of him. I never had that terrible terror again in my whole life. Well, how are we doing for time? We have six minutes. Let's try, see if we can get through Matthew 19, 16 to 29. I don't know, that's kind of a long passage. Um, We could just stop early. 16 what? 16 to 19. I'm going to go ahead and read it to save time. 16 to 29, I'm sorry. A man approached him and said, Teacher, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? Jesus said, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you want to enter eternal life, keep the commandments. 
The man said, which ones? Then Jesus said, don't commit a murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. The young man replied, I've kept all these. What am I still missing? Jesus said, if you want to be complete, go sell what you have and give the money to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away saddened because he had many possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I assure you that it will be very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it is easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. When his disciples heard this, they were stunned. Then who can be saved, they said. Jesus looked at them carefully and said, It is impossible for human beings, but all things are possible for God. Then Peter replied, Look, we've left everything and followed you. What will we have? Jesus said to them, I assure you who have followed me that when everything is made new, when the Son of Man sits on his magnificent throne, you will also sit on twelve thrones overseeing twelve tribes of Israel. And all who have left houses and brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, children, or farms because of my name will receive one hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Does this mean we have to give up everything? I think that question they ask him is really relevant for him. It's relevant for all of us. Like, you know, how can we make it? Well, must have shook him up. Yeah. This this passage is loaded, too loaded for four minutes. But, you know, this, this idea of why do you ask me what is good, there's only one who is good. If, are you saying I'm God? Which Jesus was. He's, he's testing him. And, and uh, he says, keep the commandments. And Jesus lists them all, including love your neighbor as you love yourself. And he says, I've kept all these. And Jesus says, oh, whoa, you have? Then go take rid of everything. If you've really kept these, get rid of everything. Give it to the poor. Then I know you've loved other people as you love yourself. It's a pretty powerful, pretty powerful lesson. Uh, you know, we, what we tend to do is misapply it. If we all gave everything we had to the poor to follow Jesus, um, who would support us? <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but the truth is, this is his problem. Mm-hmm. Jesus is pointing the finger to his self-righteousness. Because in, in rabbinic thinking, the rich were blessed by God. That's why they were rich. They had a free ticket to heaven because their, rich tes- their, their wealth testified to them that they were righteous. That's the whole crux underneath this. Uh, so if, if you recognize that Jesus recognizes his chief problem is his self-righteousness, he gets to it. By saying, okay, prove your point. You think you've loved your neighbor as yourself. Go sell everything you have. And then come and follow me. And so when he says it's very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle mm-hmm. than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and he wasn't talking about a literal camel and a literal e- needle. There was a gate in, in Jerusalem called the needle that camels had to crawl through. They couldn't get through with their loads. You had to unload them, mm-hmm. get them through it, and then reload them, is my understanding. 
But what Jesus is suggesting is the rich do not have a free ticket to heaven. That doesn't mean that they're safe to save. Just because you're wealthy doesn't mean you're blessed by God. Or if you're poor, that you're automatically lost. Or automatically make it. Right. So Jesus is leveling the playing field. But I, I know from personal experience that, that what, how big a distraction accumulated, trying to accumulate stuff and pursuing wealth and having the big house kind of thing can be, you know, and um, I mean, I, I find that we're happier with less. I mean, not that we were evil incarnate, but, you know, it was a distraction because like, oh, more, 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 you know, it's, 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 it, it can kind of be a sickness. It can, and, yeah, kind of be an obsession. And, 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 and you know, like... Um, for Mama and me, we don't care about the mansion in heaven. Like we would both be really happy if Jesus just lets us be like zookeepers and take care of baby animals or animals, animals any size or shape. You know, like I don't if, think if, they'll be a zoo. I think they'll be running free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, like, like if we can if we can watch after the animals, we'd be really happy with that. We don't care about the mansion stuff. So, so, but like, but I, I, you know, and I, and I, I kind of feel like you know my eternal life has started all. Already, not because of who I am, but because of who Jesus is, and because I'm trying to abide in Him and grow with, you know, grow closer to Him. You know, so I feel very blessed. Yeah. See, it, 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 most of us don't have the problem of a lot of wealth, uh, but we have other issues that we think this proves that we're righteous. No, the only thing that Jesus says proves that we're righteous, that we can rejoice over, is persecution. And how many of us are persecuted? No, we we haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> right. That's true. Um, all right, our time is up, fast up. Thank you all. And let's have our closing prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you that you have shown us the pathway of what your love can do to heal and transform us. To Show us our transparency, our, our inadequacy, our weakness. And yet at the same time to make us whole and able to love other people and to forgive them. We ask that your love may fill our hearts, that you may uh, move in us uh, to give us the experience at the foot of the cross where we the, the field is level and where we are all one in you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.